Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes, I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Today, we have Sydney Portier. Really, is... I'm going to try not to weep. But um, he is a very special guest uh, for me. He's a man who I have uh, admired and literally adored since I was a little girl. Um, I remember sitting on my linoleum floor, same one I was watching Diana Ross with the, on the Ed Sullivan show. But I remember I was 10 years old at the time. My mother worked as a maid. We were on welfare. And I was watching um, the Academy Awards. And I saw him. We were colored at the time, so a color man. <laughs> I saw him and saw a colored man get out of a limousine and was just in awe of that. And then that night, he won the Academy Award for Lilies of the Field. And what that did for me... Um, as a little girl watching on my linoleum floor, it said to me, that is possible. That is possible. You can be colored, and that can happen to you. And you can also be black, and that can happen to you. Um, he is uh, one of the most honorable people I know, and one of the finest actors of our time, and a courageous trailblazer who forged the way so that people like me could dream bigger dreams. Denzel Washington recently put it this way, Sidney Poitier didn't just open doors, he tore them off their hinges. <laughs> Sidney Poitier personifies dignity, strength, integrity, and grace. And for 50 years, this brilliant, not to mention also handsome actor, has not just earned our respect, he has commanded it. Always a powerful symbol of courage, Sidney Poitier has been breaking through social barriers from the moment he set foot in Hollywood. Every character he's played has had something important to say. In 1958, Sidney Poitier broke down another barrier when his work in The Defiant Ones earned him an Academy Award nomination. He was the first black man ever to be considered for that honor. 
Five years later, another first. He took home an Oscar for his performance in one of my favorite movies of all time, Lilies of the Field. By 1967, Sidney Poitier was the most popular movie star in America with the top three box office hits. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and To Sir with Love. Even today, his legendary body of work has people applauding. From presidents to Hollywood's biggest stars, Sidney Poitier is still earning respect. He was honored with the coveted Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award for his tremendous contributions to the film industry. Sidney Poitier. He usually keeps the door on his private life closed, but in his new book, The Measure of a Man, the Measure of a Man. Don't you love that title? He writes candidly and passionately about his family, about his relationships, and about his extraordinary career. He rarely does television interviews, so this is a very special treat. Please welcome Sidney Poitier. You're here. I'm here. <laughs> what took you so long all this time? Well, I was just telling Sydney in the green room before we spoke briefly, I took this book on vacation with me and was reading it like in preparation for the show because I'd read your other autobiography, This Life, wonderful autobiography, and started reading this. And this book really is so thought-provoking, so beautifully written, that I was sitting at the pool with my girlfriends and I started reading it out loud to them. And you know what they said? They goes, they said, did he write that himself? <laughs> you wrote this yourself. I wrote it myself. This is what I was reading to my girlfriends when you were re talking about your mother. You say, my mother, Evelyn, was a creature of silence. She was so inarticulate that she could hardly talk to anyone except my father. She couldn't speak to me much, though she communicated very eloquently in the way that she cared for me, the way her spirit hovers over me to this day, her presence always around me, guiding me in ways I'm still trying to understand. Eloquent, beautiful, oh. lovely. Thank you. <laughs> the book is called The Measure of a Man, a Spiritual Memoir. Why is that? Well, I wanted to explore the values that are and were underpinning my life. I wanted to look at them because I've, I feel uh, internally that I am an ordinary person who's had an extraordinary life. And therefore, I wanted to find out what were there, uh, what influences over and above my own contribution made up the mix. And I think uh, my, my parents were one important factor. I think Providence was another. Mm -hmm. I think serendipity was yet another. But, you know, you make it very clear in Measure of a Man that your foundation, the essence of who you were as a person, was formed in those early days on Cat Island. Yes. Yes. And you, you mentioned in the book where a friend had asked you recently, what did you think of yourself when you looked in the mirror? And your response was? I told him, first of all, there were no mirrors in our house. Uh, the only way I saw a reflection of myself was in pond water <laughs> or in a piece of broken glass from a rum bottle. 
uh, I had no frame of reference because there were no white people on the island except two. Two. But they were, uh, their presence represented neither oppression or power. Who were they? They were just two people, one a doctor and one a small shopkeeper. So I, my answer was I never had an occasion to compare my color with anything else. Therefore, I only saw myself as what I was, a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, I have felt this for years that when you say that line in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, when you're speaking to the man who plays your father, the character, your father, those are your words, basically. Yes. You see yourself as a colored man, I see myself as a man. Yes. Because color was not a part of your upbringing. It was not. Uh, when I got to, to Nassau, which was ten and a half years later, mm -hmm. on Cat Island, I spent ten and a half years in that semi-primitive community. I went to Nassau at the age of 10 and a half. Semi-primitive, meaning you, you tell the story of your mother gathering stones and chopping the stones and selling thousands of pounds of stones for gravel for $4 a, was it $4 a pound or? No, a pound, yeah. okay. my dear. It was $6 a ton. Oh. <laughs> what my mother used to do, she would go into the forest and find stones, sometimes as much as 50 pounds, 30 pounds, uh, larger still, and she would bring them home. And she would sit under an almond tree with a great big broad straw hat on her head, and she would pound that stone into smaller stones, and then the smaller stones into gravel. She would use a hammer. And from morning to night, she would pound small stones into tiny bits of gravel until she would have a mound reaching almost to the ceiling of our little house. And a guy would come by once every three or four months because that's how long it took her to accumulate this pile of stones. Mm. So that's where you come from? That's where I come from. You, you speak about your father, one of the great lessons he gave to you was about being the measure of a man. What is the measure of a man? Well, my opinion? father's point of view was the measure of a man is how well he cares for his children. And uh, that stayed with me. Of course, it put a heavy burden on me because I subsequently had six children. All <laughs> <laughs> daughters. All daughters? Yeah, all daughters, all daughters. I have uh, six daughters and I have five grandchildren. Wow. Has this life surprised you? Has it surprised you? You come from Cat Island, you're, you, you, you had no idea really what the movies were other than you wanted to be a cowboy and move to Hollywood because you thought that's what, <laughs> where cowboys live. Has it surprised you? How does it, how, but yes. it see, uh, this is the damnedest thing. Uh, <laughs> it didn't surprise me. See, I, I said before that uh, I'm an ordinary person who has had an extraordinary life, and the extraordinary life had a little to do with what I brought. Mm -hmm. But it had much to do with forces outside of my control. I think among those forces was some energy that my mother represented. Do you also think that among the forces is what you believed about yourself? That's what I found so interesting about the book because I, for myself, because you're reading, you're always thinking about your own life compared to other people's. And I remember being in Mississippi, not believing what I was told was possible for 
colored people at the time. I just didn't believe it. Clearly. And so the fact that you have been able to become what you have become in life, a part of that is that you didn't believe the dogma. You didn't believe what people said was possible for a black man. Well, I, from the very beginning, I didn't believe that. I mean, yeah, when that's what I, I mean. Yeah, when I arrived in Florida, uh, everywhere I turned, that's what was being said to me. But you see, before I got to Florida, I had had the opportunity through my mother and my dad to have set some kind of foundation as to who I was. And I was not what I was required to be in Florida. I was not that. I couldn't be that. I was taught that I, I had basic rights as a human being. I was taught that I was someone. I knew we had no money. Still, I was taught that I was someone. We had no electricity and no running water. Still, I was taught that I was someone, you see. I had very little education. A year and a half, in fact, was all the schooling I was exposed to. Still, I knew that I was someone. So all of your education, everything you know now has been self-taught? It's a kind of, uh, it's an arrogant approach to look at it that way, and I don't. I had to learn things in order to survive. I had to learn, for instance, when I got to Florida, I didn't know how to dial a telephone. I didn't learn to dial a telephone until I arrived in New York City. And you were how old, 15, 16? 15, 16, mm -hmm. I arrived in New York City with $3 in my pocket and uh, no relatives, no friends, nowhere to turn. And I had to design my survival. Maybe, obviously, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I designed my survival. I knew I had to depend exclusively on myself. You speak in Measure of a Man a lot about being the outsider, being the outsider. What was that like for you during that time, being the only black man on the majority of the sets, being the only black man carrying that well, and all that that meant? It was unusual for me to be in a circumstance in which every move I made was tantamount to representation of 18 million people. Right. So I had to be careful. I, I recognized the responsibility that uh, whether I liked it or not, I had to accept whatever the obligation was. And that was to behave in a manner, to carry myself in such a professional way as if there ever is a reflection, it's a positive one. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... Uh, but you have done that throughout your career. You say you have always chosen your, your roles based upon honoring yourself and honoring your father and honoring your mother. Yeah, well, that, that's something uh, I, I decided to do early in my life when I first started in yeah. the theater. Tell us that story when you went and you didn't have any money. This, is the, this, I thought, defined the measure of your manhood. When you had no money and you first went to Marty Baum and they had this role for you and you didn't take the character because... Yeah, uh, it, was called, it, was a, it was a movie called The Phoenix City Story. And it was the part of a young man who worked in a casino in a place called Phoenix City somewhere uh, in the South. And he apparently, according to the script, had witnessed uh, a murder or was thought to have witnessed a murder. And the people who perpetrated the murder wanted to uh, shut him up. So they went to see him and they told him that he must never speak uh, of anything that he might have seen. 
And he was, uh, he didn't speak to anyone, but in order to underscore the threat, they killed his child and threw her body on his lawn. And uh, this guy, uh, an average person, he, his response was nothing. He didn't do anything about that. And I told them that I couldn't play that because uh, that man was a father. And knowing my father and remembering my father, I didn't want to have that kind of uh, record on my, my plate. I just simply decided not to do it. Uh, at the time, my second child was about to be born. I had no money. I was working in a restaurant. Memories come back. Yeah. When I read that, I couldn't, I thought, well, that's it. That is, that is what character is. He had no money. His second child is coming. You were going to make like $700 or something a week. $750. $50 a week doing this film. So back then, when you have no money, you have no money. And he turned the role down because it wasn't representative of, of the kind of man that he wanted to play. So what did your wife say when you came home? And said, <laughs> <laughs> I could have had a role in seven hundred fifty dollars. Right. Well, what I did. But was, instead, I have my dignity. Yes. Actually, <laughs> what I did was I went from my agent's office after I said that I can't do it. I went from his office to a place called uh, Household Finance Corporation, uh -huh. yeah. and I borrowed from Household Finance because I had some furniture in the apartment we were living in, and mm -hmm. I borrowed seventy-five dollars uh, that I had made out to. I uh, forgot the name of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how I managed. Wow. And then, this is the beauty of this story. Was it weeks or months later, Marty Baum calls you back mm -hmm. to say, what kind of guy are you? <laughs> I got a call from that, Marty Baum. Yeah. I'm, I'm working in the restaurant. A call came in and I said, oh, he said, Sidney Poitier. I said, yes. He said, this is Marty Baum. I said, hi. I said, uh, would you... What, are you working? Are you doing anything? I said, no, I'm working in the restaurant. He said, well, why don't you come down? I'd like to talk to you. I said, okay. I went down to his office, and I walked in, and he looked at me for the longest time, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about you for all these months. He said, there was $750 you could have used. I know you needed the money. And he said, why didn't you take the job? And I said, well, look, I don't want to talk about it. I just simply don't, and, uh, but I just didn't want to take it. He said, well, in any case, I think you're crazy. <laughs> Therefore, anyone as crazy as you are, I would like to be his agent. Wow. <laughs> and that was the beginning. And that was that the beginning. That was the beginning of a 50-year relationship with that agent. Lilies of the Phil is one of my all-time favorite films. So is Patrick Blue. Sidney uh, earned the Oscar for Best Actor, playing the kind-hearted handyman who happens upon a convent of German nuns who desperately need help building a chapel and learning how to speak English. Yeah. At any time that you were making it, did it ever occur to you that you would end up taking the prestigious Best Actor? No, no not one moment. Mm -hmm. It was the farthest thing from my mind. But you'd already been nominated by that time for Defiant Ones, correct? Yeah. In 58, yeah. But, uh, you know, 
Hollywood was a different place somewhat than it is today. And uh, I was not looking forward to a nomination or an award. It all came as a big surprise. As a matter of fact, when I received the, the award, my name was called by Annie Bancroft uh, during the ceremonies. And I was sitting there like everyone else in this arena in Santa Monica, and I had already predetermined what I was going to do as soon as they had called the other guy's name. <laughs> I was going to applaud and applaud for the other guy. <laughs> so she said, Annie Bancroft said, and the winner is Sidney Poitier. And I started with, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> I have to ask you, there hasn't been another a black man who's won the Academy Award for Best Actor since you did in 1964. Were you thinking that you were going to be able to do that for Denzel? I was thinking very much mm -hmm. in those terms. Yeah. Were you disappointed? I was disappointed, but my disappointment had to do with uh, the fact that I believed his performance was the most dimensional, the most impactful, the most far-ranging. It was a very, very good performance. It was. Paul Newman and Sidney have been friends for nearly 40 years, and today they are New York neighbors who still get together to discuss heavy topics. We asked Paul Newman to tell us something the rest of the world may not know about Sidney Poitier. I remember walking down Madison Avenue with Sidney, and we had been discussing God. As we approached 92nd Street, I said, you know, Sidney, I've always felt that the capital G in God existed right here inside the human chest. And Sidney lit up like a firecracker and jumped up and down and did deep knee bends and said, yeah, 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 yeah. And people were stopping in the street to watch this, this circus and at that moment, I resolved that I would not discuss religion with him again. He is a, a better human being, a better father, a better husband, a better friend than he is an actor. I feel that every time he acts, he's describing who he is because he's not only consistent in his acting, but he's also consistent with his family. And whatever he believes in, whatever he is doing, it's because he believes in his heart. He's always there, you know, to rescue us and lift us up and give us a shoulder to cry on, and he's a good dad. He is totally self-taught. He reads five newspapers a day. He has this amazing appetite for learning just about everything possible. He amazes me. Those were three of Sidney Poitier's six beautiful daughters and his wife, Joanna. He has two daughters with his second wife, Joanna, who he's been married to now for 25 years, and he has four daughters with his first wife, uh, Juanita. Fatherhood, you say in the book, the privilege of being the father to your six daughters is one of the great honors of your life. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why has it been so? Well, I, I come from a great family. Mm -hmm. I, 
I've seen family life and I know how wonderful and how nurturing and how rewarding it can be. I've, I've had it all my life, certainly. And when it came time for me to start a family, I was quite anxious to do so. Really? Yeah. Did you want a boy? Uh, I have six girls. Now you ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> but at one point, did you say, well, maybe if the next one's a boy? Certainly. Actually, after the third child, you figure, well, it'll be nice to have a boy, certainly. And, uh, and you know, uh, during the time uh, of the births of my children, there wasn't that, what is that thing they do nowadays? They can tell. In, what it is? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, ultrasound. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I didn't have that, and I had it. I wouldn't have wanted it. Really? <laughs> no, I wouldn't have, because there is something about the child coming out. And when the child arrived, let's say my fourth child arrived, it was a girl. And I was told it's a girl. And it was all right. Really? It was all right, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I, I don't... There's something about being the father of a child. It's so miraculous. It's so wonderful. And to quibble about genders. <laughs> and even beyond miraculous for you, what you speak of so eloquently in Measure of a Man, where you talk about how the fact that you are here, wherever you are right now, it means the bloodline has never been broken. That's correct. You say, in measurement, you say, vanity, which the dictionary says is an excess of pride, was the only way I could brace myself against the onslaught of the culture's merciless indictment of me. With no other means at my disposal to fight off society's intent to restrict my range of motion, to smother and suffocate me, excess was engaged to speak on my behalf. I was saying, okay, listen, you think I'm so in consequential, then try this on for size. All those who see unworthiness when they look at me and are given thereby to denying me value to you, I say, I'm not talking about being as good as you. I hereby declare myself better than you. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I came along in a time, the America I came along in uh, was... Uh, in, in many ways, many appreciable ways, the America we're in today is different than it was when I came along. And um, the situation for me was that pretty much wherever I turned, I found that simply because I was a black person, there were uh, resistances here and there. I mean, uh, in, in, in job opportunities, in places I could stay, where I could shop, where I could my dream or whatever I decided would be what I would like to do. I couldn't let my, my imagination soar and go searching in a free world for what I would like to do. There were restrictions placed on me. And I, coming from the culture I did come from, I had a deep-seated resentment of that kind of restriction because I thought it unfair. I mean, I knew, I knew that this color was my color, but I had no idea that it was a condemnation of me. It was going to stand in the way of my expressing myself in life as a human being. So when I had to face it, I decided that those who thought of me in such negative terms, 
I was going to lay down a challenge. No, I am not going to try to be as good as you. I'm going to set my bar higher, and I will be better. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was made in 1967 when the subject of interracial marriage was absolutely taboo. Tell us about, didn't you have to go and meet Katharine Hepburn? Yes, I did. And Spencer Tracy? Yes, I did. Yeah. And that was like, guess who's coming to dinner? That really was. It really was. <laughs> that was the real dinner before the movie. Yeah. Where they were sizing you up? Yes, they were. Uh, <laughs> were you intimidated? Not really, you know, because I, I've always had a sense of myself. I knew that I was able as an actor to, to meet my responsibilities. I didn't question that they wanted to check me out because even though I had had quite a number of pictures, about 30 or more, and I had won the Academy Award by then, but they were entering into a relationship with a black man, which is something they were not probably accustomed to doing. It was an artistic relationship, but it had economic foundations. They owned a part of the film, and I would own a part of the film, as would Stanley Kramer. Uh, they wanted to know the kind of person they were getting into business with. Uh, I didn't mind that. I, I just made sure that they were the kind of people I wanted to get into business with. <laughs> Do you have favorites of your own? Favorites? Yeah. I have six favorite films out of 56. So. Okay, what are they? Is that one of them? That's one of them, okay, yes. Good. I won't tell you the other four because uh, the more I narrow it down, then there will be so many films that will be left out and so many people I've worked with and I don't want to make that kind of You character. are entitled to have your favorite six. <laughs> For goodness sakes, out of 56. <laughs> It's got to be, they call me Mr. Dibbs. That's one, That's yes. also one, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this, the slap scene mm -hmm. in there, the slapping scene in there. It, originally, it was not written so that you slapped him back, isn't that correct? Correct, yeah. And you said? I said that I wouldn't play it that way. <laughs> because? 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 The guys who wrote the script, well-intended though they were, they were extending an old stereotypical pattern mm -hmm. uh, to extremes. I mean, that was the epitome of turning the other cheek kind mm -hmm. of the situation. And I thought this was a modern man. This was a lieutenant of detectives in the uh, homicide division of the Philadelphia Police Department. And this guy, without reason, slaps him across the face. And I said to the director and the producer, if you want to make really good cinema, if you want to have a scene that will be remembered, and if you want me in the picture, <laughs> <laughs> then you will rewrite it so that within a nanosecond, as soon as he slaps me, he gets slapped right back. So, I would think that would have made you even angrier when you get charges that you're not standing up, you're not black enough, because you have, in your own way, behind the scenes and on the screen, been standing up for that which you believe to be true and right. Yeah, but you know, history uh, passes the final judgment. And uh, uh, in my case, 
The body of work stands for itself. I have not made a film that I was ashamed of. I have made a film that my mother could see and feel very good. I have made 56 motion pictures. I've been a principal player in motion pictures for 50 odd years. And I think that my work has been representative of me as a man. And I think as a man, I've been representative of the values I hold dear. And the values I hold dear are carryovers from the lives of my parents. Mm. So uh, I'm okay with myself, with history, my work, who I am and who I was. How do you look so good at this age? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, do you have a special herbs and spices? or How do you look so good? Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm not aware that I look that good. You look good. <laughs> when Sidney Poitier remembers his spirit, his mind wanders back to the Bahamas where he grew up. The values he learned from his parents have kept him connected to the powerful inner spirit that continues to guide him. During my earliest years, I was constantly exposed to, to nature. There were, for instance, no automobiles and no motorized vehicles at all, boats or, or trucks or cars. So the sounds that came to me when I was a boy were the sounds of the environment, were the sounds of insects singing and the sounds of water against the shore. But then when I went to places where there were cars and traffic and people, I began to realize the difference. I could walk on a beach for hours and hours by myself. I used to do that lots. And I would listen to the sounds, all of which were natural sounds. There was a purity. Uh, there was a closeness to nature. I know that it was a most powerful influence on the rest of my life. I honor my spirit when I think of the core values of my parents. My father didn't define his core self by material things. He didn't. He loved us and he cared for us and he talked to us and he nurtured us. My mother's spirit is always around me, always there, guiding me almost. I can sense it. I first felt that sense of connection with my parents on Cat Island, and I never lost that. My spirit is honored. When I think of my connectedness to the universe, I feel I'm a part of everything. I'm a part of nature. Thank you so much. This is a, this is a full circle moment for me. Well, it's a Full certainly... circle moment for me. <laughs> it's for me as well. well thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. 
If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah show, The Podcast. And I thank you for listening.